1: I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. James Davalos is a portfolio manager and research analyst at Horizon Kinetics, the New York-based asset manager and investment advisory firm, manages over $4.5 billion and established industry presence for more than 25 years. James is the co-portfolio manager of the firm's new inflation beneficiaries ETF, ticker INFL, and manages Horizon's internet fund, as well as several private and institutional accounts. Having started on Horizon's trading desk in 2005, James quickly progressed to begin his tenure on the investment team by December 2006. We discuss what sets Horizon's value-contrarian-oriented approach apart, James explains predictive attributes and how they give Horizon their edge, and finally, James takes me through the firm's unique INFL ETF, up nearly 19% since inception in January. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the podcast, James. It's great to have you with us. Uh, So how's your week been so far?
0: Uh, It's been a really interesting week. I've actually seen a lot of uh, new developments here with uh, inflation indicators and central bank comments where I guess they keep you on your toes these days.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Really interesting time, particularly to uh, be managing an inflation-linked ETF product that will get on to... Uh, now, we'll start by addressing it uh, up front. Uh, we'll give a little bit of detail just to uh, pique people's interests, uh, and then we'll uh, cover your background before returning to cover it in greater detail. So, let's get straight into that ETF product. So, why now, in your opinion, is it a good time to invest in Horizon Kinetics' inflation beneficiaries ETF? So, I'll, I'll approach that question both from a,
0: a top down and a bottom up level. But I think from a top down level,
1: people should recognize
0: that we are at the tail end of what is probably a 30 plus year cycle of disinflation. And what I mean by that has been over 30 years of central bank and government policy that has favored capital over labor, uh, primarily through record money supply growth um, and keeping interest rates extremely low. And that has favored capital, and that's been disinflationary, as has been a variety of different factors in terms of technological innovation and globalization. But I think that there has been a slow-burning fire ever since probably the global financial crisis of shifting this trend. And although bankers have kept rates extremely low and they've kept inflation rates extremely low, Uh, COVID and the global response to the pandemic has really accelerated this dramatically to the point where we think we're at a multi-generational secular shift away from disinflation, away from capital being favored into reflation, ultimately inflation and the prioritization of labor over capital worldwide. And I think that the number one thing to, to look at is you need to remember that inflation benefits the debtor and the people that are making the rules are the debtors, meaning the, the United States and the United, uh, the EU, uh, the UK and, and all of these major central banks. And so, you know, I, I think that's why there's a very strong case for inflation today. And um, you know, like we can get into exactly what the fund does now or we can wait to get into that later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into that in great detail in a bit. Uh, We'll cover your background now just to give uh, listeners a bit of context into kind of what you are and and what you do. Uh, But I think it's fascinating that essentially we're at a bit of an an inflection point, really, and kind of how useful and successful this product could prove uh, in the short to medium term. Um, So that's fascinating. And one of the key reasons, I suppose, we wanted to talk to you today. So as I say, we'll get onto that into detail shortly. Uh, but this is probably a good juncture at which to to turn to your background and what you do on a day to day basis. So you started your career on the uh, trading desk at Horizon in two thousand and five, I believe. Was this your first role in finance after after uh, securing your finance degree and MBA?
0: Yeah. So I actually um, just came right out of undergrad and was very naive and young, and was able to secure a role on the trading desk, which was which primarily was was order entry. But the the partners at Horizon noticed my interest in more of a research role and and being a little bit more dynamic uh, on the team. So they started to allow me to attend research meetings and provide data mining and and background information to some of the analysts and portfolio managers, and then ultimately transitioned me uh, into a junior analyst role. Um, And then they also um, were able... they. Uh, enabled me to get my MBA at night um, at, at NYU, which was kind of
1: right down the street from uh, where our
0: offices are.
1: Yeah, great, uh, and I imagine that gives you quite good perspective, having worked for those different roles within the business. You've got quite a unique perspective on and kind of uh, on how it's run and 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 what each team's is doing. Uh, but predominantly, when when you were trading and on the trading desk, what were you trading? What assets, or was it a bit of everything?
0: I'd say it was ninety five percent equities. We Horizon does traffic in what I'd call asset eclectica. So there'd be times when we were doing rights and warrants and prefers and some convertible debt. And then actually back then we were even doing some, (laughs) some bankrupt, uh, some bankrupt bonds and some of the, the utilities and then, um, bankruptcy claims and things like that. But the vast majority was your fairly vanilla, major exchange listed, very liquid, uh, global equities.
1: Yeah, great. And then as you say, you sort of transitioned onto the investment team. Was that always a goal? Did you always have that in mind or did it become apparent that you perhaps more suited that side of the business? How did that come about?
0: I think when I first joined the firm and when I first was was introduced onto Wall Street, I had this grandiose view of trading where I kind of thought everybody was sitting in these pits with thousands of screens around them and, and trading for profits all day long. And you now what what reality was 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 far less uh, intriguing. And obviously I came to realize how difficult it is to actually trade for a profit. And horizon really is more just border entry. So I quickly realized that I'm far more intellectually curious and far more adept to pouring through financial filings. And I really like the I I liken investing and value investing and equity investing to solving a puzzle where You're given a lot of the inputs, but then there's always these unknown variables that you have to make your own assumptions over and then reach a conclusion. And that's something that I really just
1: love doing personally. Yeah, well, I mean, you're now a portfolio manager and you retain some of those research responsibilities, as I understand it as well. So uh, to go through what you're actually managing, you co-manage the inflation beneficiaries ETF that we mentioned. You manage Horizon's internet fund. Uh, you manage several private funds and institutional accounts as well. So we'll talk about the ETF later on, as I said, but uh, the the internet fund piqued my interest. What is the objective of that product?
0: The internet fund was actually created long before I joined the firm in 1996. And in 1996, the internet was not ubiquitous in, in any way, shape, or form. I think in many ways, people thought it was this kind of crazy... Tech thing that these people on the fringe were doing in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And some of the partners at the firm recognized that this could be a once in a lifetime secular investment opportunity, but it was somewhat at odds with Horizon being a Graham and Dodd fundamental value firm. So they sat down and thought about how can we reconcile this enormous secular opportunity with a valuation. Driven approach. And they decided we really are going to focus on the businesses that have a a tangible business model and focus on connectivity and areas that really add value within the internet ecosystem, as opposed to actually, there's a lot of them today that that are very similar to back in 1999 and 2000, but as opposed to these kind of platform businesses that are more of just an idea with no real revenue inflection point or, or value add per se. And so that was really the genesis of that fund. And it's kind of been the ideology of it ever since.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It did strike me as interesting, or at least one of the reasons I found it interesting was that simply it's named Internet Fund. And obviously, Internet is ubiquitous now, but uh, that makes a lot of sense, given that it's been running since 96. Uh, that, that makes sense why why the fund would uh, have that focus, I suppose. Uh, but you, you mentioned there how you're prominently looking at uh, quality sort of value businesses. How how do you aim to or what consistent characteristics are you looking for in potential portfolio constituents?
0: We look at large addressable markets where there's a large secular growth opportunity. But I think the number one thing that we try to focus on is a very durable, long-term competitive position. And it's really hard for us to get comfortable with businesses that are very advertising driven to think that they're going to be in that competitive position forever. And then also with kind of the overlay today with a lot of regulatory oversight with how powerful uh, some of these businesses are, where they might be on the internet, but for all intents and purposes, they're media and advertising businesses. So perhaps we've missed out on an opportunity thus far by eschewing those types of technologies that we were not necessarily comfortable with, at least from a longevity standpoint. But areas that we think are really interesting today that uh, probably the last frontier of quote the internet or the digital transformation that hasn't really taken hold yet is payments. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there's some some stalwarts in there today, whether it's PayPal or Square. But then if you look at all these upstarts there, they're banking the unbanked and then blockchain applications, the amount of friction and fees within the payments ecosystem and what could be possible within the technology that exists today. It's really a profound opportunity.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And what what sort of businesses, can we name a couple just to make this a little bit less abstract for the listeners? You know, perhaps you could name sort of the, the, the constituents with the, the most weighting within the portfolio right now.
0: Sure. I, I think some, one of the biggest within payments is PayPal. And yeah. I think obviously there's a lot of competition out there, but PayPal is a master at security. And ultimately, as the world develops and payments become more and more seamless, security is going to be one of the most important factors out there. Um, actually, along that same vein, we own a company called Khaki, which is a Uh, what I call it a defense uh, technology company. So they are effectively doing all of the cybersecurity, surveillance, and digital functions of the US federal government. So CIA, NSA, and upgrading all of the government systems from analog to digital. And so this is a a 50-year secular growth. And it's something that's incredibly difficult to compete with. And I'd say one other area that is we're somewhat um, off the beaten path, uh, you know, becoming more mainstream by the day is that we also have some cryptocurrency exposure mm-hmm. where uh, the the founders of our firm have a very strong views that the the potential of blockchain and the potential of these types of of applications long term are absolutely enormous.
1: Yeah, great. I mean, uh, we, we should mention here that the fund is up over 100% over the last 12 months, so uh, and that was when I checked. I think late last week, so it might have slightly differed by by now, but at least to say the the fund has performed extremely strongly over that time period. what What do you think is is the reason for that strong outperformance?
0: I think a lot of it has been related to some of the these high quality digital transformation businesses, also some of the crypto businesses, and you know one of the unique things is if you were to overlay the fund against let's say the the QQQ with the Nasdaq we you know we own zero representation of the fangs or zero representation of kind of these new age software as a service companies which have all done remarkably well it's we think we're focusing on things that have a lot a lot more potential for monetization and a lot less room for competition long term and so you know we tend to Correlate very differently. So the, the NASDAQ had a monster year last year and the fund did fine. Um, but again, and this fund's doing remarkably well this year. The NASDAQ is having, well, I guess compared to recent history, a somewhat uh, slow start to the year. So we're doing something very different, but we're trying to focus on things that we can really get behind over five, seven, 10 year periods.
1: Yeah, great. And your point there about doing something different uh, is, is quite a nice segue, I think, into our next section, which is. To explore Horizon's investment philosophy, so let's move on to discuss uh, the company's investment thinking and what potentially sets it apart from from its peers, would it be fair to say that Horizon are a fundamental value-based investor? And is that philosophy retained across all of your strategies?
0: Absolutely. I'd say all of the partners at the firm and who have mentored me and taught me are disciples of a Graham and Dodd ideology of... So everything needs to be reconciled to either a cash flow or a tangible asset. Um, I would say that it's you need to modernize that framework for the current markets that you're in because it's the the quote cigar butts where you're buying something below networking capital is is pretty much non-existent. But we try to take a very holistic, pragmatic view of value and. and understand or at least believe that we're buying something at a market discount so our value our returns will be driven a by the underlying compounding of the business but then also an eventual recognition of that value over
1: time as well yeah and i I think you mentioned it previously but just to underline that point what time horizon are we looking at to to realize that that value of the business is it a longer term time horizon
0: Absolutely. And the name of the firm, Horizon Kinetics, when the, when the partners left uh, Bankers Trust in the early 1990s, the reason for calling the firm Horizon was that the number one way that they could compete with massive firms with far more resources was to simply extend their time horizon. And by having the willingness to accept a longer term until a perceived catalyst, you earn a higher inherent rate of return. So we call it an equity yield curve, similar to in a normal market, you have a, an upward sloping yield curve in fixed income, whereas you go further out, there's a higher rate given the longer duration and uncertainty where we believe that exists in equity. So any investment that we enter into minimum five years, but ideally seven to 10 year hold. And if we do our job right in the fundamentals, keep up with the stock, uh, you know,
1: there's names that we're happy to hold indefinitely. Yeah, great. And I want to get back to the equity yield curve uh, in a second. But before we do, so we've talked about the firm uh, relying on a fundamental value-based approach. uh, But also on on your website and in Horizon Literature, you you discuss a contrarian-oriented, fact-based approach. You describe the company as that. So if we pick the second of those adjectives, the contrarian-oriented adjectives, analyze first, how how does Horizon identify contrarian-oriented investment opportunities? What, what is key, in your opinion, to a successful contrarian investment-based approach?
0: It, in my opinion, it's very difficult to provide alpha or make money over full cycles if you are simply going with the status quo or the consensus opinion. And so we try to find areas of inefficiency where we can have a well-founded, well-thought-out, contrarian opinion, which enables us to purchase and sell securities um, using different frameworks and often having um, a, a bigger discount. So one way that we do this is we don't structure our research team in a conventional method looking at sectors or market cap or geography. We actually have analysts that look at areas of inefficiency. So one might be, or one is, uh, tax-free spinoffs. In in Europe and the UK, you call them demergers, where typically the the, the company loses coverage once you remove a, a subsidiary out of a larger company. Um, another area is owner operators, where the, the the man or woman or team that's running the company has the preponderance of their net worth invested in that company, and so they make very different types of decisions and. Often it's very long-term oriented. They're not focused on quarter to quarter earnings. And so they and they also don't do a lot of business with the street. So they don't get the attention that agency operated quarter-to-quarter companies do. And so we feel like we can find inefficiencies there. And so those are just two of probably seven or ten verticals of inefficiencies that we focus on. And we believe that by starting the process there instead of the conventional framework, we can come at things with a very different mindset and arrive at a well-informed,
1: different opinion than might be conventional wisdom. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So the third adjective in that description I read out a moment ago was fact-based. Can you explain a little bit more about what Horizon mean by this? How are you fact-based in your approach?
0: I think this is actually extremely important and something that is one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of people, especially younger people in the industry make, myself included when I was starting, is that Almost anything you read, whether it's a newspaper, an online media outlet, a management presentation, or a sell side report, is inherently loaded with bias because there's a a message that they're trying to convey to you. And they're obviously skewing the language, skewing the message towards what they want to communicate towards you. So, by fact based, what we mean, and Murray Stahl has always been adamant that us as his analysts and team, always go to the source document. So instead of relying on, and you know, these are all great outlets for information, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, New York Times article, find exactly what they're sourcing, go directly to the source document and then make a determination based on the empirical evidence and the empirical information yourself instead of having somebody else interpret that and, and present it to you. So based on that, we actually do little to no interaction with cell-side research because of that exact factor. And you know, in, in many cases, we often don't seek out uh, meeting with management unless it's for something very specific, um, as opposed to simply doing a, a quarterly update. And I feel like that really allows you to take a step back and be objective and formulate your own opinion without the bias of having all of these other um, forces influencing
1: your decision-making. Yeah, so going to the source is finding that source bit of material that a Bloomberg or a Reuters uh, publisher might have used to inform their piece, rather than talking to the C-suite or uh, you know the CEO, CIO, etc. at one of the companies that you're potentially looking to invest in. Is is there a distinction there, or actually, you trying to have those conversations as well? Generally, no. But if there's something very
0: specific, uh, it's gotten a lot more difficult with Regulation FD to get. Information from the C-suite than it it used to be. Generally, if there's a, a source document where we can pull it or if there are government statistics or underlying data where we can go directly to an independent third party for that information, we prefer to start there and only if necessary, then utilize other
1: resources. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Well, then to to kind of build this picture of Horizon's investment philosophy, you also highlight four concepts fundamental to the firm's investment approach. One we've already mentioned, which is the equity yield curve. So let's, let's start there. I guess it's more of a tool than it is a concept, but how does an emphasis on this curve enable Horizon to identify the enormous level of return often available from securities that have been discarded or actually even ignored by conventional investment practices?
0: Sure. So the two things we really focus on are the quality of the business and the business model, as well as the valuation. And in some cases, you can identify a great business with great fundamentals and it's trading at a very low valuation. And often the reason is that the consensus opinion is that there's no catalyst to realize that value within 612 or often within the arbitrary December 31st calendar year because 95% of people in this business are compensated based on a year end performance number. And if that's how you're compensated, you're not interested in investing in something where you don't think that there's a catalyst before that date. So those verticals I mentioned before, where we feel as though we can unearth these very unique high quality business models. If we can extend the view and say, Hey, we're very confident between a management team we believe in assets we believe in a great business model that this is going to be realized it might be eighteen months it might be twenty four months but by having the willingness to go out those extra six nine twelve months the inherent discount that you're able to purchase at is asymmetric to um, what you would earn within that twelve month time frame
1: yeah and over a longer time horizon I suppose the the equity is subject to to greater sort of potential mispricing, I suppose, would that be fair? Do you often see that, that over a longer stretch, the the asset is often mispriced?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the uh, throughout a full cycle and throughout kind of a sentiment cycle, you can see really dramatic shifts within where we believe the intrinsic value is and where the equity is priced. And uh, again, if you can, if you're willing to look out, let's say five years, and and kind of discount back what you believe a normalized earnings power or private market valuation is, and you can discount that back and buy it at a very big discount. That's kind of the bread and butter of what we do.
1: Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And is there less risk? I suppose with market timing, you less worried about your entry points because as 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 we discuss, you're holding it for over a far longer period, and therefore as long as you get in broadly at what you believe is a good level, the the exact timing of the market is is less of a concern for Horizon. Would that be fair?
0: Absolutely. And we we define risk as the risk of a permanent erosion of capital. So if we buy a stock a bit too early and it draws down a bit, it's not really a huge concern to us, nor is incremental volatility, which is kind of the price you pay to be in equity markets. So we don't look at volatility as the primary determinant of risk. But if we believe we underwrite the asset correctly, and are buying it at this a big enough discount, and we're not trying to play the calendar quarter game or year end game, we feel as though on a objective basis, we can remove and reduce a lot of the risk, even though the street defines risk as standard deviation, which I think is, you know, intuitively quite silly.
1: Yeah, okay, that's great. And I think probably the final part of the puzzle in terms of your overall investment thinking and philosophy is a predictive attribute. So this is another sort of key concept I picked up uh, on on your website. Uh, And I think it uh, kind of reasonably describes most stock statistics as descriptive and backward looking in, in their nature. Think about things like size, trading volume, volatility, for example. That makes sense. But what are predictive attributes then in that context? Can you just talk us through some and explain what they are?
0: Sure. So a predictive attribute is these factors that we look at that we believe predispose the company to future outperformance. And I mentioned a few before with spinoff and owner-operator, but another interesting one is dormant asset, where the company has a very obvious large valuable asset that's not necessarily producing a lot of cash flow today. So that could be raw land. It can be a patent, any number of things. Um, Another could be a sum of the parts where we believe that there's a variety of businesses within one holding company, and if there's uh, management willingness to basically extract that value over time, they can, they can extract that. And so in many cases, you might have a spin-off company that has owner-operator management with dormant assets that is trading at a large discount to our assessment of intrinsic value. And so based on all of these predictive attributes that are could all be lumped into one company, we have a much higher confidence interval that that's going to be realized over time, given our experience with companies that had these attributes. And so that's a big part of our process is looking at uh, history and, and understanding what has contributed to our past successes. What's the commonality? And that's really where these predictive attributes are derived from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And do you think you're relatively unique in in focusing on those? If you if you compare yourself to peers in the same space,
0: definitely. I, you know, people will focus on these in in certain niches or, or certain pockets, but it, it's very rare that somebody does this as their as their complete methodology. Um, you know, I, I think that there's certainly people in the long short space that focus on spinoffs and rights and warrants, and then. You know maybe some other people that focus on management, but it's rare that people that anyone will take all of these different areas and then combine them into one kind of predictive attribute matrix.
1: Great. okay. That's perfect. So let's move on to discuss the current market environment then, and we'll focus on inflation and currency debasement, so we can set the context properly for an analysis of the horizon inflation ETF that we discussed earlier. So firstly, inflation, The March U.S. Consumer Price Index reconfirmed core inflation was up 0.3% month-on-month. Readings from April and May could be similar. Uh, Thus, headline inflation is likely to accelerate up to 3.5% year-on-year by May, the fastest pace in the decade. So obviously, let's let's address that some of that's subjective. So first of all, do you agree with that assessment?
0: I do. And I I think one of the areas that, that is causing so much confusion with inflation is what is inflation? So the Fed and governments were looking at consumer price inflation, so CPI. And the, the CPI basket, if you will, is subject to a variety of adjustments that I think might um, contribute to it, not necessarily aligning with my experience as a consumer in the United States. One is a quality adjustment, uh, which basically just says if you know, a flat screen TV is infinitely better than one 10 years ago. And it also happens to be a lot cheaper. So based on CPI metrics, that's disinflationary. Uh, Similarly, there's substitution, where if you like having a nice prime rib every night, but it becomes too expensive and you substitute chicken, uh, that results in a muted inflation number. But I do think that the CPI number is going to run high. And I think that it's going to actually trend higher and higher over time. But the leading edge of inflation is probably, well, it already has been in financial assets. So inflation just refers to anything with rising prices. And I think it's indisputable that you've seen financial asset inflation, whether it's equities, bonds, privates, or any number of yielding assets. But now we're seeing PPIs. So the producer prices that are also moving and look at any number of companies that are guiding on cost pressures and saying, we're going to have to increase prices based on our uh, producer price inputs. And I think the last piece of this puzzle to transition from PPI inflation to a stronger sustainable CPI
1: is going to be wages. And you're seeing a lot of pressures mounting there as well. Okay. And so based on that mix, do you, do you expect persistent inflation in the medium term? Will there be a lasting shift in inflation this year, do you think?
0: I do. I I think that the dynamics of inflation today, there's a few variables that this transitory narrative are missing. One is that a lot of the inputs that are going into the supply chain, yes, there's bottlenecks, but the supply side has shifted so dramatically over the past 15 years. And the nature of increasing supply, whether it's copper or lumber or agricultural products, energy, base metals, you don't just snap your fingers and then add a couple million tons or barrels of supply. These are very long cycle um, investments. And all of these industries have had decimated CAPAC and investors fleeing the sector, not for years, but over a decade in many cases. Uh, The other factor is that I think the transitory narrative is missing is wages. So right now, there's any number of seasonal businesses that cannot hire. And it's because of the incentives of people not to work. But then What's probably going to happen is they're going to have to increase wages. And then once you cross that tipping point, it's very difficult to increase all of your employees' wages to incentivize labor. You can't just pull the rug out and stop that. So yes, you can always raise interest rates to quote tame inflation and financial asset speculation, but these are underlying fundamental things that are happening in the real world, not just the paper financial world that are probably going to lead to a much more sustained inflationary environment.
1: We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions, along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah, so uh, what kind of role do you think uh, US stimulus measures will have then? Because you talk about incentivized labor there. Obviously, if the government is propping up the economy to a certain extent, that's bound to, to play a part in this narrative. Is, is that fair?
0: It is. And I think that obviously they're not going to be giving out stimulus checks forever. Um, but the bigger shift is now, and we'll see what the ultimate package looks like, but you're talking trillions of dollars mm. of fiscal stimulus. So we've reached the lower bound worldwide, the entire OECD world. There's not much more you can do with monetary. You're at or near zero in much of the world. And you know, even the US, even though our our yield curve is a bit steeper than Europe and and other parts of the world, it's you're almost at the lower bound. So going forward, we're shifting from 30, 40, 50 years of a monetary-oriented Fed to fiscal. And fiscal actually puts money in the median household's pockets over time. It empowers labor. It actually encourages physical investment. And the propensity to spend is in the median household, not in the top 0.1%. And so that's going to be an important shift because these fiscal orientation of government spending and government stimulus over time are going to be far longer lasting and far more uh, broadly encompassing than simply a monetary
1: oriented approach. Yeah. Okay. So, if we look at the the Fed specifically, and we perceive their primary concern uh, to be to avoid a repeat of the slow expansion in job gains that followed the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, and to cement the post pandemic recovery, how effective do you think they're proving in that endeavor, and will they prove in that endeavor?
0: So far, you can argue with the success that they've achieved, but ultimately, there's always going to be unintended consequences, and I think one of the unintended consequences of the response to the global financial crisis is that we could never normalize rates. Uh, there were a couple attempts, and every time that it it got going, the markets reacted fairly violently, and they were unable to sustainably raise rates. And so, I I think it's fairly naive to think that there won't be long-lasting unintended consequences of this. But I, I it, it's hard to say. I think from a a society standpoint, there is an imperative to Get people employed, get the economy up and running, and not allow the type of um, really destabilizing events that happened during the global financial crisis. But it's far harder to gauge what these unintended consequences are going
1: to be further down the road. Yeah, I think that's completely right. Societally, we 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 can't. It's all. It almost feels as if the Fed can't do anything other than what they are currently doing. But the longer term impact of of what they're doing and the measures they've put in place are are kind of yet to be seen. So I completely agree with that assessment. Uh, And before we move on to the effect of this inflation environment on the US dollar and discuss currency debasement, as I flagged at the start of this section, uh, Opto almost exclusively focuses on equity markets. And obviously it's something that you you cover at, at Horizon as well. So what impact do you think all of this, this inflation environment that we've just set the context for and discussed, what what impact do you think that will have on global equity markets in the second half of 2021?
0: I think initially it's going to be broadly positive for equity markets worldwide. Um, that's the the big caveat is that it is as long as the bond market doesn't call foul and rates rise, because the duration, particularly of the US stock market, given the negative or no cash flow of a lot of the growth and tech complexes, you have just enormous durations. So your rate sensitivity there is really concerning. But if it's if the bond market doesn't cry foul and inflation doesn't really run too, too hot, I think it's going to be broadly positive for equities worldwide. Um, and again, I, I hate the, the, the cliche of there is no alternative, but it's pretty tough to argue for somebody to invest in bonds today. Looking from a more global context, I think the more cyclical oriented economies could have a huge uplift in their markets. So the Canadian market, the Australian market, some of these Southeast Asian economies that have a higher beta to inflation and a higher cyclical component where the cyclicals could really kick in and take a, a bigger leadership instead of just this mean reversion trade. And now I, th- I think that a lot of people are going to start looking into different parts of high-quality EM and outside of the U.S. for diversification and more exposure there as the year develops.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Really interesting about the uh, particular geographies and regions to look out for uh, because of that cyclical trend that you point out there. Uh, so one for our, our listeners to to look out for uh, because, as I say, we do tend to focus on equity markets. Uh, but having said that, that, let's move on to discuss the U.S. dollar and currency debasement. What do you think this ultra accommodative monetary policy that we've discussed so far will mean for the U.S. dollar?
0: I think ultimately the dollar is going to go down against all other tangible assets. Mm-hmm. The, the complication today is that there's really no other global reserve currency. So the, the issues are probably equal in, with the pound, with the euro, uh, with the yen. And the franc, the the Swiss franc, is far too small. And then when you start looking into other emerging economies, I don't think anybody's going to be transacting globally in yuan or rubles anytime soon. So, I think it's going to be more. Uh, you can't really compare one fiat that's being debased against other fiat that be, that are being debased. Um, so we're looking at it more against other tangible assets, and you're seeing it be debased against financial assets and. There's more and more just anything that's a, a a tangible store of value that that's just inflating against the dollar, and I think that that trend is only going to accelerate.
1: Yeah. So just to uh, clarify a point that you made there, you're you're saying that t- comparing two fiat currencies is kind of a nonsensical comparison, I suppose, because they're both being debased at the same time. Is 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 that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, so obviously everyone looks at the U.S. dollar index, and but the dollar—that's the dollar compared to a basket of Mm -hmm. GDP-weighted other currencies—and all of these fiats are basically there's surging money supply, and you have long-term interest rates below inflation targets. So it's it's kind of a it's difficult to compare them against one another,
1: given the fact that they all have these uh, dynamics yeah okay, absolutely. And the Fed, as we say, is pursuing the strategy at a time when Washington is is pumping and planning to inject trillions worth of fiscal stimulus into the economy. so as a result, the Fed is falling behind the central bank curve uh, as well as weakening the dollar like we've discussed there. But do you expect further weakening to continue and if if so, kind of how, how low can it go? How much can this continue
0: The one thing that I struggle with is it's pretty hard to see the dollar getting that much lower where if, if the u s tenure is at, at one sixty uh, and you have a variety of EU bonds that are at negative yields to maturity, and then even peripheral EU bonds that are inside of 160, uh, it's, it's really difficult to see where else currency would flock to if, if the dollar keeps declining. So the, the spread of, the, of US interest rates versus the rest of the developed world today is probably going to put somewhat of a floor on the dollar, at least in the intermediate term.
1: Yeah, okay, that makes sense, because I think similarly to you, I, I can't imagine it going too much lower than its current value. Um, so to know that there is a bit of a flaw, sorry, because of the spreads that you just mentioned there, uh, will be reassuring for, for some of those listening in, particularly those that hold a, a lot of a, or a strong dollar allocation. Um, and I think actually that's perfectly sort of set the context for the inflation beneficiary ETF uh, that we that wanted to discuss at the start of the interview. So let's get on to that now. Um, first off, I believe the ETF was launched in January this year. Uh, performance has been very good so far, up around 17% since inception when I, when I last checked. So to what extent had you targeted the start of this year, 2021, as a potentially fertile environment to launch an inflation-linked product? I have
0: to be completely honest and say that there's a, a decent amount of luck um, here where mm-hmm. this the current portfolio is actually about the fifth iteration of a, Uh, portfolio that I've been working on internally for about five or six years. And going into 2020, I was looking at a far more concentrated version of it that was focusing more on some of the royalty and streaming companies. But then when we saw the central bank response and the supply chains in 2020, we realized that there was going to be a much broader opportunity set that could really be encompassed within this ETF wrapper. And we worked extremely diligently to get this launched in the back half of last year. But, um, you know, it, it takes a while to get all of your paperwork done and then to get in through um, the board meetings and then ultimately to launch. And so at first we were trying to get launched in December and then it got pushed out into early January. So um, obviously it was very fortuitous in terms of where the market is um, for when we launched, but it's, it's been a very long time and a long, thoughtful evolution to get where we are to today, then that combined with a bit of luck launching as this became a
1: hot-button issue this year. Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly worked out well. And uh, are there similar ETF products out there like this one? Um, and if, if so, why do, why do you think this one's superior?
0: I would say not similar objectively in, in what is actually being done in the portfolio. It's, it's more, this is a very nuanced portfolio that is investing in hard asset capital light businesses. So there's plenty of real asset funds out there that are investing in infrastructure and real estate with a yield. And there's plenty of upstream commodity, precious metal or energy ETFs. And then there's also plenty of tips ETFs, but all of those things are really kind of not as efficient of a way to play this over the long term as what's being done in this vehicle so i I can objectively say that i think that this is an extremely unique one-of-a-kind product
1: yeah okay and is that long-term sort of time horizon and the way you you would not advise but expect people to invest and interact with this product is that another reason why it's different and again is that reflective of the horizon strategy and investment philosophy
0: yeah, absolutely. That was one, that was one of the most important things that we kept working through when we were thinking about what type of product to launch. Is that we don't want it to be a binary bet on inflation or a one-time trade. So a lot of those other areas that I mentioned might be a 12 nine, twelve-month trade to try to basically capture uh, expectations shifting. Whereas this portfolio is oriented such that it is going to thrive in an upswing but also the nature of these business models they can withstand and endure the inevitable downturns and and cyclicality that are in these underlying markets and so i can truly say that we believe this to be a full cycle if not multi-cycle investment as opposed to that
1: binary trade or bet yeah okay and it's called as i said the Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF. And, and what that means, I suppose, is the fund aims to identify those companies whose revenues are expected to increase with inflation without corresponding increases in expenses. So that's the investment's objective, I suppose, as it reads on your website. But how does the fund do this, first of all? What, what strategy enables the fund to, to uh, have that profile? And uh, secondly, if you could answer what consistent characteristics you look for in each of the uh, portfolio constituents, uh, that'd be really interesting too.
0: Sure. The, the firm has focused on something that we call hard mm-hmm. assets for decades, um, actually long before I joined. And a hard asset is nothing more than a physical, tangible asset that is finite and high quality. So there's pricing power and there's a finite supply. And within that universe, we then look for an advantage business model that is asset light or, excuse me, capital light, where there's a lot of scalability in the operations of the business. So, the first factor is to identify these hard assets that we want to take a secular view and have exposure to. But then eliminate that business model risk that's so common within the industry, which is high capital intensity, meaning high working capital requirements and high balance sheet leverage. So the commonality of all of these companies in the portfolio is you have very high operating margins, very high operating leverage or scalability. Uh, and then minimal to no balance sheet leverage. And so that business model dynamic is what really enables these businesses to compound over the fullness of time, as opposed to the more
1: capital-intensive peers that you might see in the quote-unquote hard asset world. Okay, yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. So that to, to achieve that and retain that sort of exposure, then how actively is the fund managed? Are you fairly nimble in your portfolio construction?
0: I'd say we're fairly nimble, but most of these companies, we believe were are buying at a substantial of enough discount. And then we have a fairly um, strong view on the fundamentals of the underlying markets themselves that the indicated hold for anything we have today would be at least three to five years, if not five to seven years. But the the nature of inflation is going to shift where i think that you'll you will see a shift from these ppis into cpis and we really want to have the ability to orient the fund towards all of these different facets of inflation to try to capture
1: uh, as much of that as we possibly can yeah and the fund has significant allocations to uh, commodity based businesses as well as marketplaces and exchanges having looked through the portfolio, there's significant weightings towards those sorts of companies. Can you explain why those types of businesses are targeted?
0: Yeah, and so commodities for in the first point, there's there's a decent amount of energy exposure, precious metal, base metal exposure. And these are hard assets that are finite, high quality, and ultimately there's going to be pricing power and As I alluded to earlier, all of these industries have been in somewhat of a bear market or secular stagnation for anywhere from 10 to 15 years. You can go back to 2005 for the last copper peak or 2008 for the last energy peak, um, 2011 for the last gold peak. And Due to the nature of disinflation throughout the recovery from the global financial crisis and then capital fleeing these areas, the the supply dynamic is very, very different today. So we think that you could be in for a multi-year, if not a multi-decade reversion um, into where supply is going to be so much more important than incremental demand, especially as these fiscal measures hit. And so that's, we have a very constructive view there, but then also within kind of the ag complex and some, some more niche areas within kind of lumber and, and things like that. But moving over to the other side, the the marketplaces or exchanges that you mentioned, they're such fabulously unique businesses that I don't think many people mm-hmm. truly appreciate um, what high quality businesses they are, where An exchange is is essentially a a toll booth. It's a a financial supercomputer that matches buyers and sellers, and they take their commission on transactional volume. And some of the biggest contracts that are traded today are in interest rates, currencies, soft commodities, and hard commodities. And so if you were to envision a world where CPI was above three, and it'd be hard to imagine the 10-year treasury wouldn't move at least above two. The amount of volatility in rates, currencies, and the commodity complex would be absolutely enormous, and all the exchange needs to do to transact an extra trillion dollars plus is maybe plug in a new uh, mainframe. So these are pro-cyclically aligned with these inflationary and volatility forces, as at odds with a lot of the rest of the market. And you know, there's nuances to every one of these business models, but given that operating characteristic is why we have such a, a strong view on, on these exchanges and these data companies and other types of these kind of processor middlemen types of businesses.
1: Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, it struck me just with the marketplaces and exchanges kind of point and, and the investment case there, to what extent has the building of retail activity uh, and participation in particularly equity markets uh, contributing to the investment case on the exchange and marketplace side of things, or does that not figure?
0: It does figure because the, finan- the financial innovation that's taken place, even since I joined the industry in 2005, where we used to pay five cents a share commission, and today it's you know it's abnormal to pay over a penny or even a penny. But the amount of volume that technological innovation has permitted—nobody I mean, could sit there on their smartphone and buy stocks, sitting in line for lunch. And uh, today, obviously, people do that. And then there's algorithms, and there's momentum funds, and so all of this volume just creates more and more opportunity for then market makers and different types of market participants to then engage more and more. And so, and one of my colleagues coined the phrase "volume begets volume." Mm-hmm. So as more and more of this volume enters the marketplace, there's more opportunity for other people to enter, which then creates more and more opportunities. So there's really two factors driving it. either the retail participation, but then also that's enabled by technology and the speed and the low latency.
1: Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So the access and the, the very cheap access that a lot of the market are now getting is essentially a tailwind for, for this fund and the performance of it over, over the medium term. Um, that's that's a really interesting sort of theme uh, that this this fund is exposed to, uh, and and one that that I'm happy that we were able to pull out. Uh, and just before we move uh, away from portfolio construction um, and just how the fund shaped up over its relatively short history, have you found any biases towards particular geographies so far within the portfolio?
0: I think that right now we're we're somewhat skewed towards North America, just because there's a lot of these really unique businesses here. But then, certainly Canada has a fairly commodity-rich uh, equity market. Um, some interesting businesses in Australia, and you know, more and more opportunities uh, within within the EU. Um, we haven't so much gone into non-OECD world or Asia Pacific, but there's. Definitely a short list of really interesting opportunities developing, uh, particularly in Japan today.
1: Yeah. Okay. Great. That makes a lot of sense. So, two more questions before we move away from the ETF and into our final quick fire question round. First off, how do you expect the fund to perform for the rest of 2021?
0: I think that we're going to basically continue to keep compounding and grinding higher with inflation expectations, along with the commodity complex, and then kind of along with these. Price pushes that are going into some of the, the processor and exchange businesses. So, you know, obviously, it's, it's we don't expect to continue annualizing at the current rate that we're annualizing at, but uh, I still seem to think we're going to earn a very robust equity risk premium above and beyond CPI. And that's really what we're targeting to do. And I think we're positioned fabulously to continue
1: to achieve that goal through the back half of the year. Yeah, great. Okay, very promising. So the final question, it's the one that, well, we've touched on it, I I should say, uh, but I think it's the one that listeners uh, kind of presented with this product and the investment objective of it, they'll be most keen to to hear a, a definitive answer for. So when we're in an inflationary or reflationary environment, how about on the flip side of that, where we are in a disinflationary environment, do you protect against downside risk with a product like this can you can you kind of assuage any fears of potential investors listening in that the product can do that
0: the that's actually the entire purpose of this product where if i wanted to capture a high beta or high leverage to inflation i would not be investing in these businesses i would be out there finding The most speculative leveraged gold and copper and energy and agricultural companies in the world and fertilizer, you name it. Things where it's a 50-50 if the company survives, but if the commodity doubles, you make a tremendous rate of return. But in the downturn, you are probably going to be insolvent, if not severely impaired and that's not really what we're trying to do here we select these businesses because of these unique attributes namely the operating leverage and the capital light attributes so specifically they can withstand that inevitable downturn because there is going to be if if even if you don't see disinflation or deflation over the next 10 15 years you're certainly going to see fits and starts within discrete commodity markets. And you don't want to have that leverage and you don't want to have that exposure when that happens. And so if you look back historically at how all of these companies have performed during the downturn, that's where they really shine. Uh, In some cases, actually, specifically the gold streamers and some of the energy uh, royalties, they can allocate capital very aggressively at the bottom of the cycle when the producers need that capital and they're flush
1: yeah okay. Um, well that I think that's a perfect way to end the main body of the interview, a pretty definitive answer uh, to, to put me right on that point so So that's fantastic. So we'll leave that there, and we'll enter into the quick fire question round. So um, this is a more sort of generic list of questions. The idea is that they are relevant to all of the people that we speak to, whether they're fund managers or portfolio managers such as yourself or day traders, for example, or or even CEOs of companies as well. So simply a lighthearted way to end the episode and feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. So the first question is, what is the top mistake investors make? Confirmation bias.
0: Everybody wants to seek information that tells them that they are correct. And I catch myself doing this day in and day out and need to basically step back And not just look at sources that are telling me I'm right. I need to look at the other side and say, you are fallible. You are not perfect. You are not the smartest person in the room. Prove to yourself that you've not made a mistake. So confirmation bias is just such a natural human tendency that everybody Skews towards, and you need to be so careful to avoid that. And you know, I I
1: catch myself still every day doing it. Yeah, absolutely. That's one that I think will resonate a lot with a a lot of listeners, and and it does definitely with myself as well. Question two Where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read specific publishers at all?
0: I try to do anything that's not mainstream. Mm -hmm. So there's a variety of really wonderful podcasts out there, yours included, where there's just people I've never heard of that speak. Very intelligently, so I think that there's a huge list of great podcasts you can cultivate. There's a very large, growing universe of Substack publishers where some brilliant people that don't work for Wall Street or don't work for a publishing house basically self-publish. And more recently, probably in the last two years, I've actually been—I don't publish, but I I, I seek a lot of information on Twitter. Where Mm. there's—it's incredible some of the talent and some of the minds that are just giving free constant flows of data and information and opinions on there so i really try to
1: find unique independent sources all three of those are wonderful places to start yeah i completely agree with twitter as well that it's pretty hit and miss as as most people might imagine but there's some some real gems out there uh, if you look hard enough question three what is the most memorable moment from your career to date do you think
0: <laughs> so this is this is a I think this is a good one because it shaped so much of my um investment ideology where um my 25th birthday it was September 15th of 2008 and I'd been working uh on in finance for about 3 years at that time and I was on one of my first big vacations uh, actually I was uh in London uh sitting at a pub after visiting uh the the Churchill bunkers and if you remember the date 9-15-08, I got a, a text from somebody telling me that Lehman Brothers had just declared bankruptcy. And the U.S. equity markets opened shortly thereafter, and not too much later, I was on a early flight back to New York uh, to the chaos that ensued for the for the rest of 08 and 09. But so much of that experience, being so young and so new to the industry, when all of that happened, I think it's shaped a lot of how I think about risk and think about the world and what can go wrong.
1: Yeah, that's, that's uh, certainly going to live long in the memory for for most people listening in, I'd imagine. Um, okay, so our, p- our penultimate question, question four, uh, a top tip for your younger self. Create good habits young. You know, it's easy to get
0: caught up in kind of hubris and having a good time and only looking at the short term, but have a consistent habit of reading, start focusing on your diet, get it, get into a good exercise routine, really focus on getting good restorative sleep. Uh, I do things like meditation and yoga, but I really wish I started all of these things when I was in my early twenties or teens and, and I've developed them later in life, but I think that it's infinitely valuable if people can really focus on one or two or all
1: of these as young as you can. And they last for life once you develop the routine. Yeah, absolutely. Solid advice. Okay, so our final question, and this is essentially the, the opto question. We aim to speak to the people and companies outperforming benchmark returns. So what is an investor's best source of alpha? So if you had to narrow it down to one thing, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance? So I've noticed this with all of my mentors and partners at Horizon.
0: They have a very unique ability to look back at their experience with decades of investing. And you don't need to have decades of of investing experience, but look at what has gone right for you and look at where you've made mistakes and set a fact pattern and recognize those patterns. So having pattern recognition where it's like, wait, I've seen this narrative before and it led me to a lot of money or wait a second, I see a lot of these patterns and I got trapped and I got hurt. So to really learn from every experience you have and develop that, that, that fact pattern, recognize it, and then have a plan of action. It's just It makes your process and your, your analysis so much more efficient and objective if you can really fall back on those types of, of, of pattern recognition.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, great. Thank you very much, James. I think that's a perfect place to end. Uh, it just leaves me to say thank you again for joining us on the podcast. It's been, a, it's been a real pleasure.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been great. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets we've done the hard work for you highlighting relevant opportunities and trends and in addition we'll also keep you notified of any new products stock reports or webinars from the opto world if you're interested sign up using the link in the show notes and thanks also to co-fruition for consulting on and producing the show until next time